Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Dr. Arthur Evans. Arthur is a clinical and community psychologist, healthcare innovator, policymaker, and the chief executive officer and executive vice president of the American Psychological Association, the leading scientific and professional organization representing psychology in the United States. Before joining APA in 2017, Arthur spent 12 years as commissioner of Philadelphia's Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services, transforming that agency's approach to serving a wide range of individuals with complex needs. Arthur also established the Evidence-Based Practice and Innovation Center, which trained over 2,000 clinicians and greatly expanded access to evidence-based services. Arthur has received national and international recognition for his work, including being recognized as an advocate for action by the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, receiving the American Medical Association's Top Government Service Award in Healthcare and receiving the National Council of Behavioral Health's Visionary Leadership Award. We're excited to have Arthur with us today to discuss population health and his work with the APA in improving wellness. Arthur, it's clear your work prior to becoming APA's CEO was focused on the very initiative and agenda that you have for APA during your term, that of promoting health and reducing health inequities with evidence-based standards of care to benefit the health between populations. I would love to have you share with our listeners this construct of population health. Arthur, welcome to our show. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you here. You know, Arthur, it's clear that your work prior to becoming APA's CEO was focused on the very initiative and agenda that you have for APA during your term, that of promoting health and reducing health inequities with evidence-based standards of care to benefit the health between populations. I would love to have you share with our listeners this construct of population health. Sure, well, again, thank you for inviting me to be a part of uh, your podcast today. You know, I, I spent 30 years in my career prior to coming to APA in the public sector. I spent uh, about 16 years in Connecticut, another 13 years in Philadelphia. And in that work, which was primarily in public policy positions, I really came to understand that the approach that we've been taking to mental health in the nation is really inadequate. It's inadequate because of the complexity of these issues, the ubiquity of these issues, the complexity. And And we really need to reframe how we think about and approach mental health. And in fact, the work that I did uh, both in Connecticut, but really in in, uh, Philadelphia, really demonstrated that if we are willing to change our paradigm, that we can actually reach more people. And the whole idea of population health, which isn't a new concept, the concept has been around for, for quite a while, I think what is new is applying that and really thinking about behavioral health, mental health substance use conditions uh, from that perspective. And simply the way I would describe it is really a shifting of our our focus from treating illness at the individual level to really focusing on improving the psychological health of all people in our neighborhoods and in our communities. That is a, it sounds like a simple shift, 
but it's, it's very complex <laughs> to do that. But the good thing, the good thing that I have found is that when you talk about it in those simple terms, people get it, people want to be a part of it, people want to promote that way of thinking. The challenge for us as a field is how do we do that? How do we make that shift? I really like that. You know, it's we we know that the dollar spent on the front end of things is far less than the dollar spent on the tail end of things when we're treating, you know, the 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 illness, the sickness. Once we get there, it's it's very costly. It's it's difficult for the person going through it. And the level of level of energy and time and money that goes into that at the tail end of someone when someone is sick, you know, we can do things early on, I think is great. And what I love is the emphasis is that psychology, mental health as a whole, these practitioners the way we we get to think, the way we're trained to think can be so helpful in this early detection. And I know you want entire populations to be having their health, health inequities and their safety improved. And what I love about you encouraging psychologists and again, mental health practitioners to take a look at this is that this multidisciplinary science, we have some opportunity to really influence this health status. What I appreciate is I've read about your initiative here is that if we can address the multiple contexts that influence health status and well-being and functioning across the lifespan, we get to take steps towards your goal of fostering equitable health and human flourishing very early on and throughout the lifespan. Yeah, what you just said really captures what, what we're talking about. When I talk about population health, I, I usually have a part of my presentation where, where I do a, a compare and contrast. And so I'll do a little bit of that here because I, love I, to hear what I have found that it is actually helpful to really understand what we're talking about. And what I always start with is that the, the paradigm that most of us are trained, I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, clinical and community psychologist. And the paradigm that I was trained under and most people in our field is trained under is a black, what I call a black box paradigm. We set up a black box called treatment. The idea is that when people get sick, they come to us, we diagnose and we figure out what's wrong, we treat what's wrong, and then we discharge people. That mental model, if you could kind of see in your mind sort of this, this big black box, people coming to us and then in one door and going out the other door, is basically the way we, we've been trained. And you know what I point out to, to people, and actually audiences always point, point this out, is that there are a lot of problems with that as a mental model for mental health issues, ranging from the fact that most people don't come, right. you know, half of the people who have mental health conditions don't ever show up at a, at a mental health clinic. The people, when they leave, they're not well, because that's an acute care model for what we know as a chronic condition. Yes. To I use the, the metaphor of the box because we know that people come into treatment programs or clinics and we treat them pretty much the same, regardless of the, the diversity. If you're treating someone in uh, rural Alaska yeah. and you're using the same techniques and the same approach as someone in urban New York, there's something wrong. Those people right. live in very different contexts, but the way we approach the treatment of a condition is pretty much the same wherever you, you are. You know, And so there are a lot of problems with the black box metaphor and mental model for how we treat mental health conditions. But the biggest challenge, I think, is that it constrains how we think. Because in the black box model, the only way that we can help people who have mental health conditions is to bring them into treatment. You listen to the typical person on a new show after you know some incident, and you ask them, well, what do we need to do, Dr. Smith, to, right. to improve this? Well, we got to get more people in treatment. I absolutely believe that. 
But I believe if that's the only thing that we're going to do, we're never going to get there. And so what a population health strategy says is that, look, let's step back for a moment. Let's look at the entire population and look at how we have interventions across the continuum of the population that are all aimed at health. I'm a graphical person, so I use a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid are, you know, the 20% of the population that have a diagnosable condition. The middle part of the the pyramid are are people who are at risk or they have subclinical issues. And at the very bottom of the pyramid are people who are well. And in a population health approach, what we're doing is we're saying we need to have strategies across all of those groups. At the top of the pyramid, We need to have effective and efficient clinical care. We need to make sure that we have evidence-based treatments, that we're tailoring services, that we're doing all those things that the science and our experience tell us will help people who have diagnosable conditions. But we shouldn't stop there. The the problem is that that's where we, we stop. We also know people in our communities who are struggling. They don't have a diagnosis. We saw this during the pandemic, for example. Lots of people, frontline workers, really struggling under tremendous amounts of stress. And the way our healthcare system is set up is that we have to wait until those people have a diagnosis. And what we're saying in a population health approach is, no, we don't wait. What we do is we help them where they are, whether they they have subclinical issues. If we can't help eliminate the, the challenges that people are having at that level, then let's intervene at the earliest possible moment. But then we don't stop there. We go to the bottom of the pyramid and we really focus on how do we prevent? And there are a lot of things that we know from psychological science that tell us if we do these things, it makes it less likely for people to develop deeper end problems. So that in essence is what we're talking about is shifting from that black box mentality to more of this uh, whole population approach that we believe actually helps get us much better outcomes. I think the psychological model is such a beautiful model to holistically see and understand the various levels at which we can come in. And if we can get out in front of things you know, ahead of time, they, they just don't develop. And one's trajectory gets to be very different when we identify those risks early, early detection, early intervention with that whole prevention piece of it. You know, that, That's kind of the bottom of the pyramid, like you said. And then I love the second piece too, where we're when one is at risk, we just had some Maui fires here on mm, Lanai, yes, and and, and, and what what we did, we we recognized as a psychological association, the Hawaii Psychological Association. We sent practitioners over there, some of our local hospitals sent people over there from a psychological perspective to help mitigate some of the risks that are going to naturally right. be a part of that for the people that went through, but also for the first responders. These people, Absolutely. you know, and, and even their animals, <laughs> they're going to be stressed out. Yep. And if we can kind of look, I, I love that piece, early intervention, when we can mitigate these risks, we can turn the course away from where it could go. And then we're always going to have, like you said, the tertiary prevention services where there is serious and chronic illnesses, but we've got these effective and efficient treatments that are psychologically and medically scientifically based to help. But this early piece, these first two tiers are so important, aren't they? They are critical. And I think the irony is that we actually do this for physical health. We ask people, 
on safety belts. We put chlorine in the water. Why do we put chlorine in the water? Because it is a lot easier to to prevent people from having dysentery and other, uh, you know, waterborne illnesses than treating those illnesses. Uh, We have clean air. We, you know, there are all kinds of things that we do from a physical health standpoint that are at those first two tiers to prevent people from developing deeper in physical health problems. And really what we're saying is we need to take the same exact approach when it comes to to behavioral health. And in fact, many of the things that we do to prevent physical health challenges actually help with psychological challenges. Absolutely. As well. Yes. Yeah. And vice versa. When we we have our, you know, mental health in in, in place and straight, we're much more motivated. We, We have a greater tendency to do healthy things along the way, have healthy relationships. So it all kind of dovetails together. You know, you're encouraging, again, psychology as being uniquely positioned to address this initiative that you're promoting with such kind of vigor and encouragement. And you're encouraging the following principles as a lens through which these activities for health promotion can be viewed. And there are four of them. And I'd like to name each one for our listeners and have you say just a word about them. The first one is working within and across diverse systems to advance the population health, us partnering with folks. Sure. So one of the things that we recognize is that, you know, this black box model of having people to come to us doesn't work for a lot of people. Because most people in our communities who have behavioral health conditions never come to a a specialty treatment program. So if we really want to reach people, we have to go to where they are, the places that they're already going, the systems that they're already in, and build into those systems the capacity to address these issues. One of the unique things about being a behavioral health commissioner in city government, which I was in Philadelphia, was that your counterparts are the fire commissioner, the police commissioner, the school superintendent, people who do public works. And if you were to ask any of them that deal with people, what are the top three challenges that you're facing? Behavioral health challenges would be in there. The fire commissioner, the people who they're going out on EMS runs, high degree of behavioral health challenges. Police commissioner, obviously, you you know that police are running into people who have behavioral health conditions. The people who run the prisons, that's who they're dealing with. School teachers, that's who dealing with. Child protection, these issues are everywhere. And and so one of our strategies has to be, how do we go into those systems, partner with people in those systems to develop capacity to deal with those issues in the places where people are showing up, as opposed to saying, okay, we got to send these people over here to get help. Let's embed that capacity within the places and systems that people are showing up naturally. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental health first aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide mental health first aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through mental health first aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. 
Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community. I, I love that piece of really developing a deeper understanding of what's going on in our communities and where we might have some points of entry. You're talking about with community leaders or local institutions, even faith-based organizations where we oh, can absolutely. implement some great pieces here in schools and employers. Yeah, I, I really like that. The second one is, and I, I think this is kind of a real key piece too, working upstream to promote prevention and early intervention strategies. Say a word about that one. Sure. We have a very reactive stance to mental health. And, you know, our stance is once a person has a diagnosis, then we can help you. And in fact, ask the typical clinician whether or not they can help someone and get paid for it by an insurance company if the person doesn't have a diagnosis. And in fact, most clinicians will tell you that they've had to make up diagnosis at some point in their career to help somebody who came in and didn't meet the nice DSM criteria. That shouldn't happen. You know, when people show up and they ask for help, whether they meet, check off all of the boxes or not, we need to be able to, to intervene. Furthermore, we know that there are things that we can do even before people start to have symptoms or begin to have problems or challenges that we can do to help protect people's psychological health. Let me give you just a few examples. Yes. We know from lots of psychological research that social support is a very strong predictor of our physical health and our psychological health and our social health, for that matter. We know that doing things like exercise and diet can make a huge difference in our health. We know that if we manage stress better, that we can help prevent people from having deeper end problems. In fact, chronic stress is a big challenge for our physical and mental health. So if we know those things, yeah. we ought to be <laughs> using that knowledge to help educate yeah. people much earlier. So the idea of, of working upstream is saying, look, our stance as a field shouldn't be to wait till people are in crisis or have a diagnosis. Our approach in the field should be to use what we know, regardless of where people are on that continuum, and intervene at the earliest uh, possible moment. One other thing that I, I want to say, and this is kind of a, a conceptual thing that I, I, I like to talk to clinicians about, and that is that if you define yourself as a psychotherapist or as a yeah. clinician, yeah. you are limiting your training, particularly psychologists. Psychologists are broadly trained. You're trained in science, you're trained in assessment, you're trained in lots of different areas. What I uh, encourage when I was a mental health commissioner, people to redefine themselves, is as experts in behavioral health. Because if I'm an expert at behavioral health, then I can consult with teachers who are maybe struggling and give them some techniques that they can use to help with the children. I can consult with people in the faith community. I can, particularly for psychologists, I can develop interventions uh, that might be effective for people who are working with children or you know whatever the, the group is. So I think part of this is sort of us redefining how we see ourselves. If we see ourselves as only someone who can deliver a service as opposed to someone who brings knowledge that can be applied across lots of different settings, I think we're going to be much more effective in this field. That's such an important reminder, I think, Arthur. You know, in, in the top three things you talked about, there's always a behavioral relational component. Always. Period. Always. And always. to remind ourselves as practitioners that, hey, wait a minute, this is what we specialize in. That's what we've gone to school for. That's what they test us on the ERPP around. 
And there's these mm-hmm. scientific-based models of prevention and early intervention, as well as validated tools that we get taught in for screening and monitoring for that early intervention or early detection, early intervention that you're talking about. And there's this wealth that we've been trained that we sometimes forget that we can actually work outside of our offices in larger ways and exciting Absolutely. ways and in ways that really create some great, great opportunities for people to say, hey, wow, that's pretty exciting. Just a really fun kind of quirky story. It was it was bring your dad to school day to talk about their profession. So my daughter invited me to come and and, and I thought, you know, what am I going to do with these, you know, seventh graders to kind of give them some idea about psychology? And I knew that the guy that was going to come behind me was a fireman and he was going to walk in with his axe and his helmet. And, his, and I couldn't compete with that. I knew that already. I was going to lose that one. But I thought, what could I possibly do to give them some idea about what they can do in a behavioral health way? So I got those stress dots, you know, like the old mood rings. And you can buy these little stress dots, you put them on your hand. And so I, I gave, I passed one out to each of the kids in the room and I, and I stressed them out. I had them do some exercise and kind of yell and scream and kind of get all excited to show what stress looks like. And it turned all black and, you know, dark. And then I, then I taught them how to relax. And these are just some fun, kind of a fun story here, but an example of some models that we can use to teach some Absolutely. self-soothing, self-regulation, self-monitoring that we can actually do. If we can teach that at an early age. What if we did this later on in life, but a fun introduction to the very thing you're saying that we have these science-based models and these fun screening tools to get in early, have some fun and teach people like, wow, I actually have control over more things than I realize. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a great example. And I think it's a great example of the, the principle that we ought to be using our expertise. We, have, we spend years getting trained and yeah. a lot of the things that we think are common sense or widely known aren't necessarily known by the, the public. And, and we really ought to be sharing that. That ought to be a part of our role, in addition to if you are a clinician doing the, the clinical work. And sometimes, you know, we think that, well, we know it, we were trained in it, we, we do aspects of it in our lives. And we sometimes think, well, other people already know that, don't they? No, they don't. No, they you don't. Know, they, they don't. And so you introduce it, they and go, I never really thought about it that way. Or maybe there's another dimension to think about it as. But it doesn't mean that people already think about it or, or know it, do they? No, no. And in fact, you know, one of the really great experiences that I had when I was a mental health commissioner was because we were doing so much work in the communities, you know, just partnering with all of these groups. You know, when we started some of that work, you know, we were a little bit hesitant. You know, are people going to accept us? Do people want to talk to the mental health, quote unquote, folks? And what we found over and over again, people not only wanted us there, they were hungry for the information that we had. Uh, One of my best examples, one of the things we did in Philadelphia, we started doing community mental health screenings. And when we first started doing that, the the idea is that we would go out, we get a group of people, we go out, we set up a table, we put up a sign that said, get a checkup from the neck up, something, you know, cute like that. And people would come over, talk to us, we'd have information there. And then they could do a screening to determine if they should see someone further. And when we first started doing it, people were like, oh, people are not going to do it. People are not going to come up to a table about mental health in Philadelphia and, and talk to us. They're just not going to do that. Well, it turns out that lots of people do. We Minimally, we'd have 100 people uh, get oh, screened my. in these community settings. Awesome. We would invariably find at least one person who was suicidal that would come over. And I would always wonder like, well, so what if we weren't there that day? Right. And, and what yeah. about all the other days when we're waiting in our black box, yeah. people are out there in the community. And because we're not out there where people are, 
they're, you know, they're having these really bad outcomes. But I just found over and over again, I, I actually did a talk at a circus, believe it or not. <laughs> they invited me to do a talk. It's like, well, we want you to come and talk about mental health. It literally had a circus. It was like this, this thing is called the Soul for a Circus. Or something, mm, something. Awesome. And, and I, I did a little talk. And, you know, so, so my point is that I, I just found that, you know, whether it's churches, schools, yeah. businesses, when you... <laughs> come and you say, you know, can we help you or how can we help you? People want that information. That's awesome. Just out of curiosity, what does one say in a talk at a circus? What did, <laughs> what, what did, what did you say? You know, when I, when I said, I, I probably said something, I always try to like figure out where people are. You know, I probably right. talked about stress and, you know, that, you know, all of us are stressed and some of the things that we can do and here's some places that you can go if you're stressed. Okay. So I really try to use language that people you know, <laughs> awesome. would, could, could relate to. I ain't going to talk about, you know, if you are having a, a digressive right. condition, that kind of right. thing. That that's typically awesome, doesn't work. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. Well, actually, what we're talking about right now is really your third tier. It's educating psychologists and community partners on population health and the unique contribution that psychology can make. The fourth is enlisting a diverse array of community partners, going back to what you're talking about, healthcare services, maybe even indigenous and tribal healthcare authorities. You're talking about, you're talking about Alaska. We do that here in Hawaii, bringing those you know kinds of emphasis in. Talk just a little bit about you know, addressing the diverse array of community partners and access and entry into these to be a part of what we're trying to do here. Inherent in every community is the wisdom to solve its own problems. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, you know, it comes from my community psychology background, but it also just comes from my experience in working with communities. People, we can have this as a field, not just our field, but lots of fields where you know, we've studied, we trained, people have problems, we go into communities and we come in with our solutions. Yeah. And what I have found it is much better to go into communities and say, you know, what are the problems that you're having? How yeah. do you understand those problems? What is it that you believe the solutions are and how can we help, right? Yeah. So it's a very different kind of perspective. And what I have found is that when we go into communities and we work with communities like that, get great ideas, yeah. things that we would never come up with. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So when I was in Philadelphia, we had a large Southeast Asian community. And I'll give you two groups that, that examples that I like to talk about. One was a Vietnamese community. And, you know, one of the people from the community came to me and said, look, we, we have a lot of women in our community who are widows. Their husbands were in the Vietnam War. They're widows. Mm -hmm. They're isolated. They're depressed. We want uh, some help. And what we think will help is something called uh, a juk breakfast, J-O-O-K yes, breakfast. Yes. And the idea was that these women would have breakfast with yeah. kids in the, the daycare program, these little kids. So they became sort of grandmothers to these little oh, kids, so you know, really helped them have a more valued role within their community, which is very important for them. And, and so they asked us to fund it. So we funded that. And what we found was that what they were seeing in terms of the depression in these women really turned around. Now, if we would have gone into the community and said, okay, the, what we need to do is we need to get these women on some psychotropic medication. Absolutely, we need to get them yeah. to some therapy, get them some CBT. Uh, that probably wasn't going to work. 
but the community understood that the issue was, and, and actually, if you look at the, the intervention that they, they came up with, it's based on psychological science. We know social connection, having yeah. valued roles. I mean, we food, have the food science and that already did. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. We already have yeah. the science that, that says that this is what helps people. They intuitively understood that in their community. And so I think it's a really great example of when we listen to people, we certainly bring something to the table, but the community also brings something. And I think when we, in those ways, we come up with very creative and great solutions. And, you know, when I was commissioner, you know, because of all the different ethnic groups we had in, in the city, we did that with all kinds of groups, with the West African community, with the Cambodian community, with, you know, we just all of these different communities, the Latino communities. We let them drive the process and we brought our expertise to help supplement that. I think it's a great reminder to be able to come in with humility and curiosity, but not to minimize our ability to listen and to understand. And I think that's a lot of times what good therapy is. The answer's in the couple, the answer's in the family, the answer's within the person. And helping them ask these questions to develop a curiosity within themselves and maybe opening some doors or, or opportunities to try something on that's already there, accessible to them, that can really be a solve for what they're going through. I, mean, I love this, you Absolutely. know, the, 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 the breakfast with the juke. Juke is a really soulful soup. It's a, or a type meal. And it's a, what a wonderful opportunity, kind of the food and the fellowship right there yep. to help these Vietnamese women have a purpose and something to be able to contribute to that's larger than themselves and the relational component around that. I love things like that. And that's where psychology gets to kind of join with, not lead or that's tell, right. but to that's join right. with and be kind of curious and ask the questions that get people to come to their own answers and that's then right. try and implement it. I love that's that. That's it. That's exactly it. And, and I think we can do it. I mean, we have the training to do that. It's like, you know, we have yeah. the training to do that. And I think when we do that, and, and humility is a, a great point here, when we, when we approach people with that humility that they are the experts of their lives and their communities, yeah. we certainly have expertise that we can bring. Uh, and when we partner with people, we just get some great uh, results, I think. That's so good. Arthur, we're kind of, kind of rounding the bend here. I want to just kind of as we begin to wind down, you know, I'm thinking about the immensity of population health. It's, it's, it's pretty large. And when one listens, I think one could be you know, easily overwhelmed. But like anything else, each one of us has a chance to contribute. And that contribution is often best determined by thinking about where each of us already is making mm -hmm. a contribution in health and betterment of others through our professional endeavors. And, and then to see if there isn't just maybe just one additional thing that we could add to what That's we're right. already doing. That's we don't right. have to look very far outside of ourselves to see need. Address our listeners, if you would, for us, just with a message, kind of a takeaway yeah. to their potential, it, you know, with the, the opportunity to, to individually to advance maybe a collective focus with what's, what's right next to them with regard to population health. Well, I think that that is a really good way to look at it. I think to see population health as not this thing where now I got to do all of this stuff and I got to deal right. with all of these people, but more of a framework right? A way of thinking. And if we can think about the way we are helpers, yes, different from the black box that I started yeah. with, that I'm embedded in this setting that people come to me for my expertise and I treat them, right? And send them out. But if I can shift to say, I'm a part of a community, a larger community, I have expertise. And that in this community context, 
where I want to really apply my expertise is with children. So yeah. I'm going to, even though I, you know, spend 40 hours a week, you know, seeing people in therapy, I'm going to spend a couple more hours a week yeah. talking to teachers, or I'm going to talk to people in my church or my synagogue or whatever, yeah. who are working with mm -hmm. children who may be struggling with some of these issues, but I have expertise where I can help them better address the needs of the the people that they're working with you know whatever i'm just coming up with an, an example yes. but whatever that that is i think we can do it so i think if we think about it from that perspective it isn't uh, overwhelming because what we're doing is we're, we're changing our frame and we're saying within this frame here's what i can do to really advance the the broader help i want to give a quick example of, of something Please that really illustrates this. Again, this is when I was commissioner, the recreation department came to my agency and said, you know, every year we kick out about a hundred kids out of the summer camp program. You know, it's like somewhere 60 to hundred kids. And they were saying, you know, how, how demoralizing is going to be. Kids are in school the whole academic year, you know, they finally get out and then we kick them out and all the, the problems that that, that caused. So they asked us to come and work with them. And all we did was we had our psychiatrists and psychologists talk to the staff and train the staff on normal child developmental behaviors, right? Said so this is normal behavior. This is not normal behavior. Here's how you can handle this. The numbers went from like 100 kids that first year down to maybe like two or three kids. Dude, that's awesome. Now, what that's a awesome. powerful intervention, right? And so you kind of think about the impact. I mean, I, you know, when I was an individual clinician, I could see maybe 40 people a, a week, maybe, probably not that many. But when you can take that expertise and then go and work with a system or an organization and you can reach literally hundreds and dozens of kids, that is the shift. And I, and I yeah. think if people can sort of think about it that way, as opposed to, oh, now I have to do all of this other, no, 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 no. Yes. Still are doing the work that we've always done. But what we're doing is we're looking at the world differently. We're seeing the value that we bring as mental health professionals. We're seeing the, the value of partnerships. And we're partnering with people to really help address the, the broader uh, mental health needs of the community. Now, I will say for those who are in public policy positions, you do have to think about the whole population. You do have to think about policies. You do have to think about funding. And that's what I, you know, when I was in government, and, and I think a big part of the role of APA is to make sure that at the governmental level, we are implementing policies that do promote this and allow people who are commissioners to fund a variety of things, not just clinical interventions, but the range of things that we think will benefit people's mental health. That's so good. You know, I see <clears throat> such a return on that investment with the communities and populations or just that sports team you're talking about that gets to hold these kids. We want to keep kids. And this is, this is the bottom part of the pyramid. Yeah. We don't keep them in. We're going to visit them when they're at the top. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. so if we can keep them in down here. And, and a lot of times it's just the practitioners or the people working with these to understand how to deal with these things rather than punish them and, and kind of, you know, alienate them. What we are also emphasizing, I want to, is just maybe as we wind down all the benefit that comes from practitioners giving of themselves, giving of their expertise, implementing these scientific-based models and, and things that are right there for us to give. But we oftentimes forget, and I think this is what you're also emphasizing, is that the practitioner themselves, they grow. 
Oh, they absolutely. Get the, 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 the joy and the fulfillment that they get for maybe getting out of their office or doing something a little bit different than they would normally do, the return on that for themselves is also something that is so worthwhile, isn't it? Oh, I think it is huge. And, you know, the the example that I gave doing the community screenings and just having people come up to the table and, you know, finding people who, you know, were thinking about contemplating suicide and being able to intervene. I mean, that's why we became clinicians to begin with. That's why, you know, we want to help people. And I think what's built into all of us is this idea of helping the most people that we can. And when we can get out of that black box and partner with people in different ways and bring our expertise, it is very fulfilling and and satisfying. So uh, absolutely, I think we get a lot out of it. Well, I would love folks as we wind down for today to be able to follow up and maybe find a way that they can plug themselves into this. So if you would give our listeners the way that they can contact, get in touch with you, learn more about you and also with the APA. Sure. Well, you know, the APA, our website is APA.org. Um, what I'll do is leave you with a link to this, the information specifically around population health. It's easy to get to me. I'm at aevans at APA.org. So people can reach out to me directly, but also our website. And we can, again, give you the link specifically for the population health work. Just be happy to engage, particularly psychologists who are interested in sort of joining this movement to use the breadth of our skills as a field to address these issues. That's so good. Well, Arthur, I sure enjoyed having you on the show today. Thanks for being with us. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back some other time. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for for allowing me to, to chat with you for a bit. Great to be with you. Also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Arthur and me today. It's always great to have you with us as well. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and an archive of all of our other episodes and resource materials can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash bht. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.